1966, in a South African diamond mine, a stone was unearthed that weighed 241 carats. That's about the size of a giant Brussels sprout. Legendary jeweler Harry Winston cut the diamond into a pear shape that weighed a little over 69 carats, about the size of an average Brussels sprout. And in 1967, it was purchased by Harriet Annenberg Ames, the sister of billionaire Walter Annenberg, who was the publisher of the Daily Racing Form and TV Guide. But in a twist worthy of a fairy tale, Harriet Annenberg Ames hardly ever wore that diamond. Most of the time it sat in a bank vault because she was worried it would be stolen. As things are in New York, she said, one could not possibly wear it publicly, darling. That's just my guess about how she sounded. And she didn't really say darling. I just added that for comic effect. Anyway, in 1969, Ames put the diamond up for auction. And this is the story of what happened next. It involves a very large diamond, two very popular movie stars, and one of America's very favorite comic actresses, and how they all came together to make TV history. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Thanks for coming to the potluck. I'm David Inman. Before Beyonce and Jay-Z, before Brangelina, before Tomcat, before Posh and Bex, even before Sonny and Cher, there were Liz and Dick. Liz was Elizabeth Taylor, Hollywood royalty who grew up on screen in a series of MGM films in the 1940s and 50s, including National Velvet and Father of the Bride. Her first kiss was fodder for the fan magazines, and so was her first wedding. And the next one. And the next one. And the next one. She was the most covered widow in America when her third husband, producer Mike Todd, died in a plane crash in 1958. And later that year, she was reviled in the very same fan magazines and gossip columns as the woman who stole Eddie Fisher away from his then-wife, Debbie Reynolds. Then in 1961, after she almost died from pneumonia, Hollywood let Taylor know all was forgiven by giving her an Oscar for her performance in Butterfield 8. Dick was Richard Burton. Like Taylor, he was born in the United Kingdom. She in England, he in Wales. He had appeared in several movies in England and acted on stage at the Old Vic before coming to Hollywood in 1952. Amazingly, it took almost 10 years for his path to cross with that of Elizabeth Taylor. The occasion was the filming of Cleopatra, a mammoth undertaking that almost put 20th Century Fox out of business. Taylor was at the height of her fame, and she was getting paid $1 million for the picture plus a share of the profits. Burton was winding up his run as King Arthur in the Broadway production of Camelot when an offer came in. 
Could he replace Stephen Boyd as Mark Antony in Cleopatra? He could, and he did. And at first he thought Elizabeth Taylor was all publicity and no talent. But seeing her in action convinced him otherwise. Burton kept a diary, and he wrote about the meeting. She was so extraordinarily beautiful that I nearly laughed out loud. She was undeniably gorgeous. She was lavish. She was, in short, too bloody much. And not only that, she was totally ignoring me. It didn't take long for an affair to start, one that made worldwide headlines and gave a considerable boost to the box office take for Cleopatra. When Burton's friend Laurence Olivier learned of the romance, he sent Burton a telegram. Make up your mind, dear heart. Do you want to be a great actor or a household word? Burton wired back, both. Liz and Dick married in 1964 and kept making movies together. Eleven in all, most of them box office hits. The VIPs, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, for which Taylor won her second Oscar, The Taming of the Shrew, and The Sandpiper, among others. As a married couple, Liz and Dick continued to make headlines for their lavish lifestyle, their frequent arguments and reconciliations, and the exorbitant salaries they were making, and for their problems with the tax man. 1969 was a good year for Richard Burton. He made $1 million for starring with Clint Eastwood in the film Where Eagles Dare, and another one and a quarter million as King Henry VIII in Anne of the Thousand Days. With all that money, he wanted to buy a present for Liz. Which brings us to Sotheby's in New York City on October 23, 1969, and the auction of the Harriet Annenberg Ames diamond. The stone had already been flown to Switzerland so that Elizabeth Taylor could get a good look at it, and then flown back to Manhattan. Richard Burton had a representative at the auction who was instructed to bid as high as $1 million and no more. The rep did as he was told, and Burton was outbid by $50,000. The diamond went to Cartier. Taylor was sanguine about the whole thing, but Burton was not to be denied. He made an offer to Cartier, and they sold it to Burton for a $50,000 profit but only on the condition that it could be displayed in Cartier stores in New York City and Chicago before being transported to Liz and Dick. An estimated 6,000 people lined up to see the diamond in New York City, and it even appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. But the New York Times was not amused. It editorialized, The peasants have been lining up outside of Cartier this week to gawk at a diamond as big as the Ritz that costs well over a million dollars, it's destined to hang around the neck of Mrs. Richard Burton. In this age of vulgarity marked by such minor matters as war and poverty, it gets harder every day to scale the heights of true vulgarity. But given some loose millions, it can be done, and worse, admired. After the public exhibitions, three men with identical briefcases, one of which held the diamond, made their way to Monaco, where Liz and Dick were attending Princess Grace's 40th birthday celebration. Liz wore the ring to the Scorpio Ball, along with what she and Dick called the Ping Pong Diamond. 
It was one-eighth of a carat, and it had cost $14. Burton had promised her a diamond if she beat him by 10 points at ping-pong, and she did. Liz then wore the diamond at the Academy Awards the following April, where she presented the Oscar for Best Picture to the producers of Midnight Cowboy. Lucille Ball enters our story at this point. She was beginning her third decade as a major TV star, appearing in sitcoms on CBS that rarely fell out of the top 10. For most of the 1950s, she'd been the star of I Love Lucy, and for most of the 1960s, she'd been the star of The Lucy Show. In 1968, there was another slight format change. The show was retitled Here's Lucy, and Ball's two teenage children, Lucy and Desi Arnaz Jr., joined the cast, often taking over the plots and giving their mom a little relief. Like Taylor, Lucille Ball had grown up on screen. She made her film debut at age 21 in 1933. She learned comedy at RKO Studios, where she was under contract for most of the 1930s and appeared in over 40 films. Most of them were middle-to-low-budget pictures, known as Bees, and she was nicknamed Queen of the Bees. In the early 1940s, she moved over to MGM, where Elizabeth Taylor was also under contract. They never worked together, but as Taylor's star was rising, Ball was increasingly stuck in supporting roles the wise-cracking friend of Katharine Hepburn in Without Love, the wise-cracking friend of Esther Williams in Easy to Wed, and later the wise-cracking friend of Bob Hope in Fancy Pants and Sorrowful Jones. By the late 1940s, Ball found herself treading water in movies, and then steady employment came along in the form of a radio sitcom. We present Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband, a new series based on the delightful stories of Isabel Scott Rorick's gay, sophisticated Mr. and Mrs. Cougat, two people who live together and like it, starring Miss Ball with Richard Denning. My Favorite Husband ran on CBS from 1948 to 1951. Ball played Liz Cooper, the Lucy Ricardo-like wife of a small-town bank executive named George, played by Richard Denning. The supporting cast included Gail Gordon as George's boss and B. Benaderet as his wife. Ball was already a skilled comic actress, but My Favorite Husband is where she began developing the mannerisms that she would take with her to TV. CBS was anxious for Ball to make the leap to television, and she set one condition. She'd do a sitcom, but her husband had to be played by her real-life husband, band leader Desi Arnaz. She wanted Arnaz at home and off the road. He and his band would tour endlessly, which led to loneliness and infidelity. Ball took her writers from the radio show with her to TV. And as executive producer of the new show, I Love Lucy, Desi Arnaz made the groundbreaking decision to record it on film, which meant it would be preserved as reruns forever, and the rest is TV history. Which brings us back to April 1970. Liz and Dick were in Hollywood, and David Frost was in town to film episodes of his talk show. The British consulate held a party for Frost, and dozens of celebrities showed up, including Liz and Dick and Lucy. Liz was wearing the ring, using up one of the 30 days a year she was allowed to have it on in public, 
according to Lloyd's of London, which had insured it for $1 million. Armed guards stood nearby at all times, another stipulation from Lloyd's. By the time Lucille Ball and her husband Gary Morton arrived at the party, the crowd around Liz and Dick was so thick that they decided to leave. And then, according to TV Guide, Dick saw Lucy across the crowded room. I'd love to be on your show sometime, he yelled out. One of the world's biggest movie stars wanted to be on Here's Lucy? Lucy wasn't sure if he was kidding or not. How would we ever get you, she asked. Dick replied, I'm available. Liz then chimed in that she thought it was a great idea, and Liz and Dick invited Gary and Lucy over to their bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel to talk about it. But when they got there, the place was full of friends like Roddy McDowell and director Mike Nichols, who'd guided Liz to an Oscar and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The idea didn't come up again, and Lucy went home thinking it had been a joke. But then the next day, Burton's agent called. They weren't kidding, and they wanted to see a script soon, like in 10 days. And that posed a problem. All of the staff writers for Here's Lucy were already working on scripts for the next season. So Lucille Ball made a 911 comedy call to Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Davis, two of the original writers for My Favorite Husband and I Love Lucy. Like all good writers, Carol and Davis had no problem reusing old ideas, and for Liz and Dick, they revived an idea from a 1952 episode of I Love Lucy they wrote called The Handcuffs. In that episode, Lucy handcuffs herself to Ricky as a joke, and they can't find the key. Ricky has to perform on TV, so Lucy hides behind a curtain and substitutes one of her hands for one of Ricky's. You get the idea, you've seen it done before, and yet it's still one of those bits of physical comedy that I defy you not to laugh at. I would play a clip for you, but physical visual comedy is uniquely unsuited to an audio podcast. You can, however, watch the episode on YouTube or on Hulu. The plot of Lucy Meets the Burtons, as the episode would be titled, involved Richard Burton trying to escape his fans by disguising himself as a plumber. He's making a break from his hotel when Lucy flags him down, not because he's Richard Burton, but because she needs a plumber. She drags Burton to where she works, an employment agency owned by her boss, played by Gail Gordon. While Burton tries to fix a leaky pipe, Lucy sees Liz's diamond ring in Burton's toolbox, interesting symbolism, and tries it on, and she can't get it off. Lucy nervously approached Liz and Dick with the script. She later said she hadn't been so shaky since she auditioned for Scarlett O'Hara 30 years earlier. Dick handed her his drink and said, here love, you need this more than I do. Liz and Dick liked the idea. Liz, who only appears in the show's final act, said she wished she'd ask for a bigger part. The Burtons had a few conditions. One was that Lucy and CBS would each give $10,000 to Dick's alma mater, Oxford University. Liz and Dick themselves would work only for expenses. Another was that a part would be found for Brooke Williams, a young actor who was the son of Burton's good friend, playwright and fellow Welshman, Emlyn Williams. Liz wanted Edith Head to design her outfits, 
and she called on her longtime MGM hairdresser, Sidney Gilleroff. Another condition involved the show's final act, where Liz and Dick meet the press to show off the diamond ring, and Lucy stands behind a curtain, substituting her arm for Liz's arm. For that scene, which would be filled with real-life reporters and columnists, Liz insisted that the prop champagne be replaced by Dom Perignon, 1961. Everyone drank except Dick, who was on the wagon at the time. He later told Lucy that it was the first time he performed sober since he was 16 years old. Liz made up for Dick by sipping on a double Jack Daniels between takes. Lucy's husband, Gary Morton, was one of the executive producers of Here's Lucy, which was shot at Paramount Studios. For Liz, he arranged to rent the largest dressing room on the lot, the one that Barbara Streisand had used while filming On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. Morton paid $30,000 for it to be redone for Taylor. Liz and Dick were models of promptness during the week-long rehearsal and filming. They were on time every day and did as they were told by director Jerry Paris, a longtime TV pro who began as a director of The Dick Van Dyke Show and would go on to direct virtually every episode of Happy Days. The only tension backstage that TV Guide reported was in the opening scene where the plot is set up through a dialogue between Burton and Brooke Williams, who plays a hotel employee. Lucy was a pro, and whatever the talents of Liz and Dick, she unquestionably knew TV comedy. Burton was underplaying and letting laughs get away, and Ball wanted to say something to him about it, but she claimed to be hesitant about telling Richard Burton how to play a scene. Finally, According to the TV Guide article, Ball suggested that Burton speak up on his punchlines because the audience wasn't laughing at them. And Burton replied, perhaps that's because they weren't funny to begin with. Still, he listened to Lucy. He pumped up the volume on the lines, and the laughs came. Now, it may be that Lucille Ball's tutoring helped save that opening. But years later, when Richard Burton's diaries were published, he had a much different impression of Lucille Ball. Quote, Those who had told us that Lucille Ball was very wearing were not exaggerating. She is not wearing to us because I suppose we refuse to be worn. I am coldly sarcastic with her to the point of outright contempt, but she hears only what she wants to hear. She is a tired old woman and lives entirely on that weekly show which she has been doing and successfully doing for 19 years. 19 solid years of double takes and prat falls and desperate upstaging and cutting out other people's laughs if she can, nervously watching the ratings as she does so. I loathed her the first day. I loathed her the second day and the third. I loathe her today, but now I also pity her. My Lady Ball can thank her lucky stars that I am not drinking there's a chance that I might have killed her. Now, i got to be honest, Here's Lucy was not the highlight of Lucille Ball's career. This episode is undoubtedly the best of the series, and the ratings were through the roof. It ended up being Lucille Ball's second highest-rated TV show ever, finishing only behind the 1953 episode of I Love Lucy, where Lucy gave birth to little Ricky. The rating of the show with the Burtons helped Lucy finish the season as the country's third most popular show. It never again reached that height. 
But never mind that, I hear you saying. What happened to the diamond? Shortly after the taping of Here's Lucy, Liz decided that the stone would work better as a necklace than as a ring. The new necklace was designed so that the diamond was resting on the scar from the emergency tracheotomy Liz had received in 1961 during her bout of pneumonia. Eventually, wearing the giant stone got to be such a hassle that Liz had a replica designed for $2,800 and ended up wearing that instead. After the taping of the show, everyone went their separate ways. Here's Lucy ran until 1974. That same year, Taylor and Burton divorced for the first time. They reconciled and remarried in 1975, but split up for good in 1976, and Liz sold the diamond for $5 million. Then she used part of the proceeds to fund the construction of a new hospital in Botswana, where she and Burton had remarried in secret in 1975. So the diamond came from Africa, and indirectly at least, to Africa it returned. In a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Cellophane flowers of yellow and green towering over your head. Look for the girl. With a sun in her eyes, and she's gone! My name's David Inman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. As you drift past the flowers that grow so incredibly high, newspaper taxis appear on the shore. 